Uh, this morning, uh, we're looking at the Eighth Commandment uh, found in Exodus chapter 20, verse 15. We've been working our way through these commandments as we work our way through the book of Exodus and come to the Eighth Commandment, which simply says, you shall not steal. I'd like to read to you another passage from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 6. This is the Sermon on the Mount. And we hear Jesus' words, Matthew 6, verse 19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Let's bow together in prayer. Father, we have just sung a song that is our prayer, that you would speak to us through your word. Your word is living and active. Even as we consider this very straightforward command that you have given to us, we pray that your spirit would, would take this commandment from you and apply it to each of our hearts in the ways that we need to be conformed into the image of your Son to a greater degree that we might be like him and live in purity and selflessness. Father, please give us growth as we look into your word this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As we consider this commandment, you shall not steal, there's no doubt countless uh, illustrations of theft that have taken place, illustrations that you yourselves could share. Just share one with you that I came across recently. It has to do with a burglary that took place in Lake Tahoe, California, at a convenience store. While a clerk was working the graveyard shift, he describes an encounter with an individual that he had been around before and was clearly bent on trouble as he came to the store. The clerk recounts the scenario this way. He says, I was on my way to go change the outside trash and I was walking toward the automatic door and it opened. And then I seen him try to come in, so I stepped towards him and then he comes into the store and kind of lunges at me. I usually have to run him off once or twice a night out of the parking lot, never out of the store though. I was just trying to get him out. That way he didn't, you know, trash the whole place. As soon as he lunged at me, my whole train of thought changed and I was just like, you can have whatever you want, man. Just take it and go. He actually grabs a bag of Snickers and leaves. The perpetrator comes back another night. Another clerk is working the graveyard shift. And the individual comes into the store, who had come before, lays down and eats a whole box of three musketeers. So the clerk calls the authorities and they come, get him to leave the store, but not until he grabs another stack, another snack without paying. 
perpetrator was relocated by the authorities to another part of the state, away from convenience stores. Would it change your perspective if I told you that the perpetrator was a 500-pound black bear? The clerk follows up and says, it was not in the job description to get bears out of the store when I was hired. That was not part of the deal. We can understand a bear going into a convenience store and eating an entire box of candy bars, but if you change that, as I'm sure has happened countless times, to a human being who walks flagrantly into a store, takes what he wants, and walks out without paying, it changes the whole dynamic. We have an indignation that rises up in us, almost an abhorrence of what's happening. An animal doing this? Okay. A human being doing this speaks of selfishness and a despising of private property. It all changes when it's a person doing it. There's no shortages of examples of theft. As I was thinking about this message, I decided to watch a few videos of security cameras capturing theft. That's how I came across the bear story. Saw one where men walked into a drugstore with big bags, went up to shelves, they ransacked the shelves as fast as they could, shoving as much as they could into the bags, and just walking out of the store. Another one showed a couple back their car up right to the front door of a grocery store, and those opening display of the stores, they just grabbed everything they could, threw it into the back of the car, and drove away. With utter disregard for anyone else, the property that they were taking that belonged to others. Theft is all around us. It is so invasive in our society. When my wife and I moved to California and bought our car there, we bought it from a dealership and a dealer who was uh, ex-LAPD. And he told us, as we were signing the paperwork and about to drive the car off the lot, he told us, don't leave anything visible in your car. Even loose change, a couple of pennies, because the thieves don't care how much it is, they'll break your window to grab it. We took his advice and were thankful. We thankfully never had it happen where our windows got smashed, but how often have you heard the story of somebody's car getting broken into, somebody's home getting robbed, something happened at work, or some theft that has struck home personally? Sometimes we like to justify maybe the need for theft happening. We can justify moments where it seems almost reasonable for somebody to do it, or if you've stolen something, you're not as quick to condemn somebody else who has done it, and so you kind of go soft on it. But as soon as somebody comes and steals your wallet, you're no longer as sympathetic as you once were. Theft is always personal. Even if it's happening to somebody else, personal. It's a violation. Theft is so pervasive 
that it's almost impossible to think of a world without it. Our world is built almost on the protection of keeping thieves out of our stuff. So much is out there, that's just why security cameras exist and locks on doors exist and safes exist. It's so infused to our world that it's hard to imagine a world without theft. And yet, if you can for a moment, just think with me, what would happen if in a moment all theft was suddenly gone? No thieving happened any longer. What would our world look like? And this may not be a completely accurate presentation of it, but by and large, there would be no need for security cameras anymore. Locks, in many instances, would go away. Passwords, you wouldn't need them. Secure web browsing, gone. Identity theft protection, you don't need it anymore. Timesheets, you don't need them. Safes, armored cars, no border disputes or neighbor lawsuits over property line violations. No trespassing signs are a thing of the past. You no longer have need for insurance and policies for theft. No loss prevention officers at Walmart. No people checking your receipt when you leave a store. No locked glass cabinets with the expensive things behind them. No theft prevention tags on clothes and other goods. No increased prices due to theft. No window bars, no guard dogs. You could have a bank where the money is just left on a table and people to take based on what they have in their own account. Furthermore, when the employees leave at the night, they wouldn't need to lock the door of the bank. No security alarms need to be set, no petty theft, no grand theft auto, no locks on your car, your home, your mailbox, no chain link fences or razor wire, no 20 emails a day from scammers, no worries about your tax money being misused, no excessive interest rates, no extortion, no embezzlement, no counterfeit money, no Ponzi schemes, no insider trading, no elderly being taken advantage of in phone calls saying that their car warranty has expired, no snake oil snailsmen, salesmen, no posh preachers telling you to give a seed gift of faith. Our whole society almost revolves around trying to protect ourselves from theft. Jesus reminds us, or teaches us, in the passage that we just read in Matthew 6, that there is a place where theft does not happen. And we are to live for that place. It's amazing, I think, that Jesus in his Sermon on the Mount, when he speaks about theft, doesn't focus on forbidding it, although Certainly he does forbid it, but he focuses on pointing our eyes to a place where there is no theft. Again, Jesus says in Matthew 6, verse 19, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. 
We certainly live in a world of theft, and Jesus' words don't mean for us to just disregard that theft can happen and to suddenly live like it's not going to happen. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't take common sense precautions to protecting our material goods. Nor is it to suggest that for those who experience theft that you can't be devastated or violated or experience the destruction that theft brings. But Jesus points us to live in such a way that even if thieves do break in and steal and take that which is most valuable from us, they haven't ultimately taken from us what is truly valuable if we put our hope in Christ who is in heaven. If you keep what is truly valuable in a bank that thieves cannot reach, you will not be disappointed. And because our inheritance is in Christ, and Christ is in heaven, and Christ is powerful, he can keep for you that which is truly valuable, namely eternal life. While this isn't my main application, I certainly be amiss if I didn't give this one to you. That at the outset, we need to apply Jesus' words by being urged to live in such a way that our true valuables, our true treasure, is not something that a thief of this world can steal. But rather live in such a way that what is, what is really valuable can never be stolen by a thief. Put your hope in Christ. Put your hope in heaven. And let him keep guard that which is truly valuable. Like Paul in 2 Timothy 1.12, when he says, But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. But when you live with that mindset, that what is ultimately valuable is secure and no thief can touch, it actually frees you up to keep the fullness of the Eighth Commandment, you shall not steal. Because, first of all, you have no need to, really. Because you have that which is truly significant. God is providing for you and will take care of you for all eternity. But furthermore, when you are confident that you have an inheritance that is imperishable and undefiable and really unstealable, you are freed up then to keep the fullness of the Eighth Commandment, not just in withholding yourself from stealing from others, but by taking the positive counterpart of that, which is being generous. Because theft is ultimately rooted in selfishness. The antidote to that is selflessness that Christ can give you. And when you have that selflessness, you are freed up to be generous. And generosity is really the fulfillment of the Eighth Commandment. But as we continue to think about the Eighth Commandment, we need to see some extent of what this commandment is forbidding. What does it prohibit? What does the Eighth Commandment keep us from doing? So I want to spend the next few moments with you just considering that question is what does the Eighth Commandment forbid? Of course it could forbid stealing, but what does that mean? The Bible 
doesn't give us an exhaustive list that you can turn to that says, here's everything you shall not steal. But as a matter of fact, that very wording of the Eighth Commandment is really kind of intriguing because it just ends almost on a bit of a cliffhanger or almost like an unfinished sentence. It says, you shall not steal. And if you stop there, you might be left wondering, steal what? And from whom? It's kind of the natural question that comes up after it. What are you telling me I cannot steal? And who shall I not steal it from? I think that's the point of the Eighth Commandment. Is you shall not steal anything from anyone. There is never an instance in which theft is permissible if it is truly theft. And so the Eighth Commandment is comprehensive and covering every kind of theft that there is. We need this commandment because from the very start of our lives, as soon as we have any even limited nobility or mobility and ability to grab things, we begin to have the penchant for stealing. Now think about the last toddler you saw when they're in a room with other children and there are toys that those other children have and that toddler sees a toy that the other child has, what does that toddler want to do immediately? It's like there's no other toy in the room. The only toy is what the other child has and they want it and they want it now. And so they get every bit of energy they can, even if they can't walk and they can barely crawl. They army crawl to get over that toy with their slimy hand to try to grab that toy out of the other kid's hand and claim that's mine. Even though they can't talk, you know that's what they're saying. And so their first theft begins at about the age of nine months. You laugh, but you did it too. You criminals. So from the very earliest age, our hearts are bent towards selfishness, which manifests it in theft. And isn't it interesting that no child needs to be taught that action? It's just inherent in them. It's almost like we're corrupted by sin from the very start. Well, the Bible doesn't describe that toddler scene, but it does describe other scenes of theft that we need to take to heart and let our consciences be trained by what the Bible describes as theft. The Eighth Commandment uses the word when it says you shall not steal, one of two main Old Testament words for theft. The word in the Eighth Commandment is generally used to refer to theft by some sort of deception or stealth. The other word that's used in the Old Testament that is somewhat synonymous but has a slightly different take is a, a theft that happens by force. So one is a, a breaking and entering that happens in the dead of night when the family has gone on vacation and they try to escape without ever, anyone ever knowing that they were there. The other kind of theft is the forced robbery, going into a bank armed and demanding cash. Both are still stealing, but they're stealing of slightly different kinds. And it implies to us that we need to take into account all of the different kinds of theft that happen. All of the different kinds of theft that we're capable of. 
The theft at its core definition would be taking property that does not belong to you. That's the way that we all kind of naturally understand this idea, just taking property that doesn't belong to you. Exodus 22.1 says this, If a man steals an ox or a sheep and kills it or sells it, he shall repay five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. It's taking what's not yours, even if it's an animal. Especially in that day, if it was an animal, because that would be the livelihood of most people. It would be a, a great attack against the person to take their animal, whether it be an ox or a sheep, goat, whatever. And it would cost the thief. You'd have to pay back plus damages for what he had done. So basically, theft is taking property that does not belong to you. We can amplify that a little bit by saying that theft is also taking what God has forbidden. Theft is taking what God has forbidden. The very first sin in the Bible is in the Garden of Eden, where Adam and Eve are given by God access to every tree of the garden except for one, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And through deception by Satan, Eve takes of the fruit that was forbidden, and Adam also eats. And in doing so, they effectively steal because they take what God said they couldn't have. And it's theft. This happens very similarly in the book of Joshua, chapter 7, after Israel defeats Jericho. God had instructed Israel that anything that was in Jericho had to be devoted to the Lord for destruction. And the Israelites could not take any plunder. It was all to be given over to the Lord. And yet, they did not listen. And the Lord speaks in Joshua 7, 11, and says, Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant and I, that I commanded them. They have taken some of the devoted things they have stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. Took what wasn't theirs, took what God had forbidden. It was found out who this was. It was Achan. And in Joshua chapter 7, verse 20, Achan has been confronted by Joshua. And Achan responds, Truly I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel, and this is what I did. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, then I coveted them and took them. And see, they are hidden in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath. Achan desired that which wasn't his. He desired that which was forbidden, and it was culminated in the fact that he took those things. They looked lovely to him, just as the fruit looked lovely to Eve, but it was still forbidden and stole. Talking about the application of the fifth or the eighth commandment to the realm of commerce, and Deuteronomy forbids 
the use of unequal weights and measures, which we don't necessarily, necessarily have in the direct application today because we have standards that are pretty much universal and we should be grateful for that. But nonetheless, the heart attitude remains where it is a, a desire of the human heart to always gain an advantage over the other person, even if it means the other person's loss, if you are the one who gains. And so in ancient Israel, they were forbidden from having different kinds of measures that would be to their benefit and to the loss of the person that they're dealing with. There's always a buyer and a seller, and either one could pull this out, where they would have one weight that would be to their advantage and to the disadvantage of the other person by either making the thing that they're, they're buying look lighter and so they don't need to pay as much for it, or if they're selling it, they need to make it look heavier than it is so that they would get more money for it. Or they have a measure, kind of like a tape measure, that makes something look longer than it is if they're selling it, saying you've got to pay for this much material. Or if they're buying it, they try to look at, make it look shorter so that they don't have to pay as much money for it. And they may only save a few shekels, but it's still theft because it is not fair and right. And God loves that which is right and fair. And so he forbids unequal weight and measuring. And this kind of dishonesty certainly continues today. Everyone is always trying to get a deal over somebody else, even if it means it's an unfair deal. Or how often do you buy a box of cereal that looks this big and the amount of cereal in there is only this much? I know they sell it by weight, not by volume, but still. Advertisers make things look luxurious and great, but when you get them in person, it's always a faulty product or something that doesn't live up to expectations. It's deception that leads to theft, and it happens all over our world all the time, and it can go on both sides of buyer and seller. And God despises that kind of activity because it's dishonest, it's unfair, and ultimately it is theft. Another category that we'll likely get into in the coming chapters of Genesis that the Bible describes as theft is man-stealing. Not only does it go into the realm of commerce, but it also goes into the realm of slavery. In Exodus 21, verse 16 The command is given, whoever steals a man and sells him and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. There is a category in which there can be theft of a person. And again, we'll elaborate on that in weeks to come. Theft also includes the mistreatment of the poor and also the abuse of generosity. Mistreatment of the poor and abuse of generosity. Leviticus chapter 19, verse 9, says this. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. And you shall not strip your vineyard bare. Neither shall you gather fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. The Lord set up a system in Israel where when the harvest came, the harvesters were not to go right up to the edge of the field and to leave some of the wheat, some of the grapes for the poor, for the sojourner to benefit from. It wasn't that it was going to be a large harvest for them, but it would be something. It would be an act of generosity, an act of kindness. There was enough for the harvester and for the poor in that crop. 
This was a system that the Lord intended to build, be built into the nation of Israel that would look out for the poor and the sojourner. If somebody went to harvest their field and they went all the way up to the edge and took every last grape and every last blade of wheat, that would be considered theft from the poor. The very next verse of Leviticus 19 is verse 11, and it's this commandment, you shall not steal. He goes on in verse 13 of Leviticus 19, says, you shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages of a hired worker shall not remain with you all night until the morning. Again, God is building into Israel a fairness and a justness where the employers need to pay their employees in a speedy way. To do otherwise, in a sense, is to rob them. And so God is looking out for the poor and for the laborer, He's trying to care for them. But it goes beyond this because you are not allowed to abuse the system of generosity. In Deuteronomy 23, Verse 24, it says, If you go into your neighbor's vineyard, you may eat your fill of grapes as many as you wish, but you shall not put any in your bag. If you go into your neighbor's standing grain, you may pluck the ears with your hand, but you shall not put a sickle to your neighbor's standing grain. The idea is that if you're hungry while you're passing through a a vineyard or a grain field, you can eat. But you can't Think, well, they got a bumper crop this year. They'll be fine. I'm going to go over there and bring my sickle and my bag, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take a couple bagfuls of grain or of grapes here. It's not allowed. You can't abuse the system that God has built in for generosity to be manipulated for your own selfish gain. How often does this form of theft happen in our society where people work the system when they don't truly have need, or when they're they're truly able to work but don't do so because they want to gain without the cost. Not saying that's every case, but certainly theft manifests itself in so many varieties, and it still needs to be called theft. Stealing enters into the realm of dishonest gain as well. Jeremiah chapter 22, verse 13, says this, Woe to him who builds his house by unrighteousness and his upper rooms by injustice, who makes his neighbor serve him for nothing and does not give him his wages, who says, I will build myself a great house with spacious upper rooms, who cuts out windows for it, paneling it with cedar and painting it with vermilion given us a picture of somebody who is living lavishly on the backs of people that he is not paying. Somebody who uses day laborers and does not compensate adequately, and he's able to now gain more because of that and build basically a, a lavish and elaborate lifestyle for himself because others are working for dirt. It's dishonest gain, and it's to be called theft. 
James chapter 5, verse 4 says, Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. Again, my intent is not to go through every exhaustive list of theft, but just to paint a picture that there is a wide variety of theft that happens. And it goes on beyond this, and you can take what you've learned and apply it to a variety of scenarios where theft may not typically be called theft, but it still is the case. I had a brother call me this week and say to me, it's not verbatim, but something along the lines of, Andy, I know that you're coming up to the Eighth Commandment this week and just wanted to share with you uh, some thoughts on that commandment because I've seen a number of ways that stealing happens that isn't typically thought of as stealing. He gave me some insights into the theft that he's seen, but the one that he pointed out for believers particularly was this, that believers who have jobs, who have employers to whom they owe their time and their diligence often steal from their employers by clocking in and clocking out and getting a paycheck for hours that they did not put in diligent work. And they effectively steal time from their employer by not working hard while they are on the clock and still getting paid for it. And he said to me, Andy, that's just as much stealing as if, as if going into the employer's bank account and taking their money. And I'm inclined to agree. It's not fair. It's not right. And of all people, believers ought to be hard workers and known for good reputations. And in fact, the New Testament speaks about how we are to work for those who are in charge of us. We are to work diligently, not by way of eye service or as people pleasers, but we're to work unto the Lord knowing it's from him we receive our reward. Go on, but we'll move on. There are always consequences of theft. There's consequences to the victim. There's consequences to the thief. They may be due to pay restitution They may have to face jail time or fines. But the worst kind of consequence to the person who is an ongoing thief is as 1 Corinthians 6 says, they shall not inherit the kingdom of God. This is such a substantial issue because when we steal, we are basically saying, to God, that we are not content with that which he has given to us, but we want to take into our own hands, at the cost of other people, what we want for our own selfish gain. And that kind of person who is so selfish and bent on their own little mini kingdom cannot share the kingdom of God because they have not bent their knee to the God who owns everything. And that's really the truth behind all theft is a denial of Psalm 24, verse 1, which says, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. Do you realize that you live in God's world? 
It's all his. He made it all. Every last bit of this world belongs to him. And anything that you have is not really and ultimately yours. It's just entrusted to you for a season. I had another brother just say to me about their property that, well, this isn't really mine. This is the Lord's. He's just letting me use it for a little while. What a great mindset that is. To remember that all is the Lord's and anything that we have is really a gift from Him. And so we don't own anything outright. We're just entrusted for a little while with that which the Lord gives to us. And in Matthew chapter 25, Jesus tells the parable of the talents, which is that story of a master who gives to his servants a quantity of money while he goes away and he expects them to be responsible with it and to use it for good while he's away. And that's so applicable to us. Everything that we have, any piece of property or any part of our life is really a gift from the Lord that we're to use for him and for his glory. And we live with this mindset that all we have is a stewardship from the Lord. Yes, we work, we invest, we earn, but all the strength that we have is from him ultimately and through him. And we use all of it under the parameters set by God. And when we try to reach beyond that and grab that which is not ours or take something forbidden or take something dishonestly, we are basically saying, I'm not content with what you have given me, God, and I'm going to victimize somebody else to get what I want for my own personal gain. That's the problem with theft from the two-year-old to the 90-year-old. It's an obsession with self. It's a selfishness that disregards the good of others. As I study the Ten Commandments with you all, I'm, I'm struck by the fact that we must not just kind of take these commandments and just isolate them and think, well, it's just this one act of theft of, of stealing a cookie when I was eight. Or, you know, I walked into that convenience store when I was 10 and I took that candy bar and I walked out with it, out with it without paying. Or whatever you have on your conscience for what you have stolen. We have to realize that these commandments get at a heart attitude that pervades all of them, which is rooted in a selfishness that disregards the good of other people, whether it exemplifies itself through murder or adultery or theft or coveting or lying. All of it is rooted in this heart of selfishness. For the criminals who walk into stores and take things that are not theirs, to the high-level manager who is fudging the numbers, to the politician who is misusing tax dollars. All of them alike have an inherent selfishness. And that's the problem with theft. When the New Testament commands us, do nothing from selfish ambition or vain conceit, when we fail to do that, we fail to recognize the God-centered nature of the world in which we live, where he allocates what we have and who has it. There is an antidote to theft. And the antidote to theft 
is found in the Lord Jesus Christ. In John chapter 10, verse 10, the Lord Jesus says this. He says the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Do you hear the contrast there between the thief who only comes to steal, kill, and destroy? He basically robs people of life. And then the Lord Jesus Christ who comes to give that which is ultimately good, to give it abundantly. He doesn't just give existence, but he gives abundant existence, eternal and good existence, high quality life and perfect life and delightful life and joyful life and peaceful life. And he gives that. And you have the contrast between that one who comes to steal and take which is not his, and you have the Lord Jesus who comes to give. And Jesus came to do that for us while we were still sinners. He died while we were still sinners, that we might have life. While we still had that thieving, selfish heart, he died for us. And isn't it interesting that when Jesus was lifted up to be crucified, He's crucified with two men, one on his right and one on his left. And do you remember what they were? Matthew calls them robbers. Jesus hung on that cross, treated like he himself were a robber, even though he was the perfect man who never sinned. And there he took the punishment for thieves and robbers so that we might be forgiven, washed new, and be given newness of life. Brothers and sisters, when you receive that newness of life, and your eternal life is hidden with Christ in heaven, where no thief can ever steal it, you can be content with what God gave you, because what else can he really give you? What else do you need? You have everything in him, and now you are freed because of what Christ has done to stop stealing, to work hard, and to be generous. Let me close with this, which is Ephesians 4.28, which says, in the wake of all of the goodness that God has poured out to us in Christ, it says, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Because when you've received the greatest gift of grace and you have that generosity poured out on you and you have eternal life secured in Christ, you are now free to fulfill the eighth commandment, not only in stopping yourself from stealing, but in living a life of generosity overflowing from the love of Christ that he has given to you. That's how you keep the eighth commandment. Live through the generosity that Christ has given you. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the clear instruction of your word. We pray, O oh God, that you would remove from us any bent towards theft or any active practice of theft that is in any of our lives. And Lord, we pray that we no longer live that way, but we live like Christ has lived, generously, diligent, faithful, Lord, we pray that you would change our hearts in this regard. And we thank you for what you have given to us while we were still sinners. We thank you for rescuing us and saving us and giving us 
a reason to be generous. Father, we pray that you be honored in each of our lives, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.